Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 51. My beautiful friends, well, here we are back again this week for another episode of the Healing Catalyst podcast. And I have to tell you, you know, I'm really, really grateful for this space and for this platform. I was reflecting this past weekend, thinking about the fact that we're now at episode number 51 and thinking about all of the incredible people that I've met and had conversations with over the past 50 episodes of this podcast, people who are leading experts in every single field of integrated medicine and integrated wellness and all of the knowledge and wisdom that each of them has so generously shared with me and with all of you, my listeners. And I'm just so in awe that this podcast has grown in this way. I never imagined this when I first started this two and a half years ago. And I'm so grateful to all of you, each one of you. I really wanted to tell all of you that because getting to 50 podcast episodes is a reflection of all of you, that you find this information and these conversations helpful and valuable. And that's ultimately why I'm doing this. So thank you. Thank you for listening and for sharing and for coming back each and every week to be with me here. Okay, so let's get back to today's episode. This week, we are continuing our exploration of plants as medicine and their application and uses for mental health, given that it's Mental Health Awareness Month this month. And today we're going to switch gears just a little to plants as food and the idea that food is medicine. My guest today, Dr. Drew Ramsey, is one of the leading voices in the growing field of nutritional psychiatry. He's a psychiatrist and an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. He also founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, which offers treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and many other emotional wellness concerns. The clinic incorporates evidence-based nutrition and integrative psychiatry treatments with psychotherapy, coaching, and medication management. His team also created the first nutritional psychiatry clinician training, helping hundreds of mental health clinicians learn the evidence and clinical methods to effectively use nutrition in clinical care. Drew is also the author of four books. His most recent was published last year called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to a Better Mental Health in Six Weeks. Dr. Ramsey has also delivered three recent TEDx talks, and his work has been featured by the Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Lancet Psychiatry, and NPR. Overall, he's just an amazing guy. In our conversation, Drew and I talk about the field of nutritional psychiatry and what it is and what brought him to the field. We also discuss the other most important factors, in addition to food, that affect mental health. And we dive into the science and mechanisms of how food actually impacts our brain health, 
which in turn affects our mental health. We also discuss the idea of traditional dietary patterns, which is something I'm so interested in, the nutrients of the eight power player foods, and his three tips for getting started with nutrition to support the brain and mental health. You know, this is the first time I met Drew, and I have to tell you, not only is he an expert in his field in nutritional psychiatry, he is a deeply compassionate and thoughtful human being. And my conversation with him was food for my soul. I think you'll experience the same. I'm honored to share this conversation with you with Dr. Drew Ramsey about nutritional psychiatry and using plants and food as medicine. Well, Drew, it's so nice to meet you finally in person, kind of virtually. Um, I have been following your work for a while and I have a real interest in nutritional psychiatry. So thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this with me. It's my treat, Avanti. It's really nice to be here uh, with you and, and with everybody who's listening. Thanks. And thanks for those kind words. It's really, uh, um, I'm one of those middle-aged people that's always a little, I don't know, still surprising to hear to me. Like, I feel like we're both <laughs> docs out there in the world trying to do good, but I, uh, I'm really glad that some of the ideas have resonated with you and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to start with a little bit about you because I find that for a lot of my listeners, they love hearing about our journeys as health professionals and sort of, you know, what got us to where we are or what we're practicing. So you're board certified psychiatrist. How did you choose psychiatry of all the specialties or what led you there? Well, I mean, there are a few influences. Uh, I, I like the combination of science and also creative artistic stuff. And, and then some of my uh, most influential family members, my aunt, Marsha, uh, was a psychiatrist or psych psychotherapist and psychoanalyst. And so, you know, I had some influence. And then in medical school, my, my, my own mental health, I don't know, I just sort of was not doing, I mean, I was just struggling with some depression, a lot of I had a healthy dose of existential angst. I got really kind of upset by how conventional medicine took care of people in a certain way and objectified people. And, and as I came into that and was, you know, what happens is you become a doctor in some ways, lo losing some, some aspects of human sensitivity to really do your job well, also accentuating other aspects of human sensitivity to get be with people in states that, you know, humans rare, rarely are. So, uh, so psychiatry appealed to me and specifically psychotherapy uh, with this. I, I really just get uh, excited about the notion that structured conversations and relationships could be therapeutic and what that meant and how people do that and what the various types of therapy are was all very interesting to me. And then I was also at that point, I, so in college, I was an athlete. I ran track and played basketball. And uh, uh, I was a low fat vegetarian. I was really like interested as a pre-med. I was like, I was like that annoying guy. Like I was like vegetarian and, you know, like anti-cholesterol. I was and, that annoying uh, girl in med school. Yeah. Too, so. Okay, good. It's nice to, yeah, we would have got along great. Yeah. Like, you pass me your tofu uh, sandwich. <laughs> like, of course, like, you go into the co-op later. Like, of course. <laughs> These ideas around nutrition as being really interesting in my personal life and then not being in my professional life really didn't occur to me until uh, then. I was really fortunate to, after medical school, I was at Indiana University, which is our, our America's largest medical school. So I'm a very proud graduate, especially I was born and raised in Indiana. So, um, but coming out of there, going to New York at Columbia really 
very different than where I was from and specifically how people think about mental health. I mean, coming from rural Indiana where there uh, really are no, we're very few mental, I don't know, there are very few mental health resources. There isn't a kind of what we call a psychodynamic model of thinking, uh, of really thinking about motivation and unconscious motivation. Uh, so I finished residency in 2004. I start in community psychiatry. I'm eventually running, helping run a, the largest community mental health day program or one of them in Northern Manhattan and, and one of mm-hmm. Columbia's larger programs for the severely mentally ill. I'm part of this great clinical team at the, what's called the Washington Heights Community Service uh, that takes care of Northern Manhattan. It's a primarily Dominican population and a new set of medications had come out. So most people in this clinic had pretty uh, challenging mental illnesses like schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. schizoaffective disorder, depression with psychotic features. So a lot of patients were, were then getting a second, still are getting second generation antipsychotics, mm-hmm. which were meds that they just launched. And, and the real hope was people would have better resolution of symptoms with fewer side effects. And the challenge was, it was a little hard to tell at the beginning. People did seem to do a little better. A side effects seemed a little better, but then everyone seemed to get, or a lot of people, a lot of weight gain, a lot of uh, uh, dyslipidemia, um, high blood pressure. And, and so that led to really looking, we were feeding patients lunch every day and looking at what we were feeding yeah. patients a little bit. You know, I was like, we're going to, if everybody's getting prediabetes, we got to start talking about nutrition. This idea that food's not a part of that conversation. And that when I meet, well, I've been very well-trained to talk to patients, Mm -hmm. there aren't usually questions about um, food, nutrition, food security, food skills, uh, food preferences, food culture, all the stuff that then when I started, I don't know, kind of asking about it because I felt I should. And as I was curious about food, I hear all this mental health stuff. You hear about people who like, oh, you know, I come home from school. And mom would always make me a snack. She'd be there. We'd sit, we'd talk. It was like, really explain something or vice versa. I'd come home and the fridge would be empty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I learned I'd have to like uh, take my friend's lunch because if not, I wasn't going to get it to eat anything because my parents worked the night shift or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. incredibly rich stories people would have about their own personal narrative when, as an eater. And so that's where I really felt like, you know, it's this merger of my interest in the deeply personal parts of ourselves and our development and and how that goes really well and not well for all of us. And, and um, in this interest, again, this growing field, growing set of knowledge around how food affects mental health and brain health. Yeah. It's so interesting as you're saying this, because I, I feel a lot of similarities in my own story of, you know, getting to my training in emergency medicine and feeling like, okay, am I like, who am I really helping? What's going on here? And then also suffering from a lot of sickness myself during that time, you know, taking a look at myself and the way that I was brought up. So when you're talking about these rich stories that you were getting from patients in this community health center, you know, it's probably, if I was one of your patients, I would have told you similar stories of, Oh, tell, you know, uh, tell us a little bit of that. I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit about it. You know, I mean, by growing, growing up, growing up in a South Asian family, first generation, my parents immigrated from India and Ayurveda, that way of living was just the way we did things. Right. And realizing that when I was in my training, that, that everything I was doing was completely the opposite of what I had grown up with. And no wonder I was suffering from all these symptoms, right? And so it was those connections that I started to make about, oh, 
you know, the routines that we have every day affect our health. The, you know, the fact that we live completely out of sync with the circadian rhythms of nature. Oh yeah, that affects our health. The food we eat affects our health, our relationships, right? It's all of these different aspects of life that have a deep impact on our health. And so um, I really identify with some of what you're saying and that sort of, you know, coming to terms with the profession that you've chosen, what you're hearing from patients, what you're going through your, in your own self, and then putting the pieces together of like, wait a second, we're missing something here, right? Um, and it sounds like food, that connection between food and mental health was a big one for you, obviously. When I was really beginning to do some of the first, you know, for me, nutritional psychiatry work, we really called, we didn't have a word for it then. It was just you know, talking to, I called the brain food prescription where I'd ask people what they eat. And then I'd think about some recommendations and it was a little strange to start recommending things. I don't have a huge background in nutrition, but you'd hear, you know, people don't have any beans or, or legumes in their diet, or they don't have any leafy greens. You'd ask about it and here they like it. And so then they'd say, well, what, you know, what should I do? Or what should I, you know, is that important? And, and I just, I don't know, I really wanted to find the answers to those questions as much as I could in the data and then begin a conversation with my colleagues in psychiatry around this. I started in 2014 presenting at the American Psychiatric Association with a number of colleagues over the years, just what we call it food in the brain usually, where we would talk about the evidence around mental health and nutrition really trying to be responsible every time I speak about this, that, you know, it's not the only thing that we need to do for our mental health. I mean, sure, there's miracle cures. If you're uh, you know, someone who has gone totally plant-based, didn't get any of the memos about B12, you know, and are B12 deficient and start eating clams, yes, your mental health will be revolutionized by those clammies for sure, because they're the top source nutritionally of B12. But, you know, uh, well, it's not the only thing we need to do for our mental health. It's certainly something that every one of us needs to get right and to get a little better in the sense that none of our nutritional advice to date has ever revolved around the most important aspect of our health, which is our mental health. Now, there is no health without mental health. There is no having heart health or gut health or endocrine health if you don't have mental health. So you just can't, you know, that that's uh, none of us function as well when our mental health is challenged. And so that that's where beginning to try and answer some of those questions has led to the antidepressant food scale, the dark clinical training in nutritional psychiatry. It's led to these books like eat to beat depression and anxiety and eat complete where, you know, in some ways, if you look at them, you can see I'm, I'm trying to answer these questions for, for both the reader and for myself. I kept getting asked like, what are important nutrients and, and, and realizing everybody was going to supplements when you do it that way. Right. I wanted to come up with, well, what foods have the most of those? Like, I don't want you to take, folic acid. Right. I mean, you can, that's up to you, but like, why not, right. why not eat lentils? You get all your, all your folic acid. And you know, if you're worried, you're not getting enough, you can eat lentils with an asparagus salad and you've just consumed two top sources of folate and one top source of tryptophan. So figuring out what those foods were, figuring out a lot of people love them. Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like a lot of other diets where people are like, Oh, like right. I can't eat whatever, you know, I can't right. eat my steak. I can't eat my dairy. I can't eat my, right, right. you know, uh, um, I, I can't eat anything with olive oil on it or nuts because they have fats and you know, all these kind of like really unhappy eaters and kind of looked at the way I was eating the foods that we were beginning to recommend in the clinic. And, and just this, I don't know, kind of growing excitement I had of like, well, we can make psychiatry and mental health really delicious. 
We can have it be a part of the conversation. It's also a way. So food is similar in a way that, 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 you know, we're sitting in the same food web. We're, we're, we're with our patients. Often we're yes. sitting often with the same set of challenges. How do you, you know, it's great to talk about all these great brain foods. How do you feed them to your kids on a Wednesday night? How do you do that on a budget? How do you do it with somebody that has a restricted palate or food allergies or just food preferences? Your kid's going through a vegan phase. Right. right. How do you support that? Should yeah. you, you know, and, and have a conversation around that and, and, and what foods are important. So yeah, that, that's, um, I think it's really interesting that you brought that up because it, it is this very intensely, um, personal and deep shared experience. Um, because food is something we all eat. We all experience it. And the data is the data of how it affects our brains, right? That helps me, I think, being nutritional psychiatry where the evidence is emerging. You know, right. I've been talking about fermented foods for a while. Man, the really great data about that is just coming out now and really yet to come. There is a brand new first ever nutritional psychiatry just came out. And what's exciting is they show one in a mental health setting, we can help people change their nutritional and dietary pattern. Two, when we do that, people have much better outcomes, statistically mm-hmm. significantly better outcomes than individuals who, you know, get something like, a, I don't know, if you get a cooking group instead of like a social group, mm-hmm. you're just much less depressed at six months. Right. That's it, it, interesting. It's really striking data. If yeah. you get a, seven nutritional counseling sessions in the middle of your depression, uh, you're a third more likely to go into remission, full remission. Okay. So, so let's get into that for a second. So I have a question. So, and, and this might, this is a lot for the listeners too. How, what are some of the mechanisms of how having these nutrients, which we'll get to, cause I know you have a list of nutrients that are really, really good for your brain and for your brain health. Um, how, what are some of the mechanisms of how these nutrients influence our brain, our brain health to then influence, you know, the mental health challenges that we, that we might face, whether it's depression or anxiety or any of the other, um, you know, diagnoses that you might make. So let's just back up for a second and talk about, because, you know, Saying for us to sit here and say, yes, food is really important, but, but why, right? What does it actually do? I think there are probably about nine mechanisms yeah. by which we've tried to uh, describe how food influences mental health. And I've got some videos up on this because it's important for us to broaden our scope from omega-3 is a miracle brain molecule and everyone mm-hmm. should take fish oil to thinking broadly about how, how food affects our mental health. So uh, one of the ways is nutrient insufficiency. There are a lot of nutrients, very important for mood. For example, if a population doesn't eat enough zinc or doesn't eat enough uh, iron, that population is going to have a higher risk of depression. There'll be more depression among people who don't get a lot of zinc or iron. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, Another mechanism is around neuroplasticity, this new idea that, that we can help coax and promote brain repair, the birth of new brain cells, brains reaching out and making new connection. And really this revolves around this molecule BDNF, really interesting molecule in terms of what it does in our brain, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a protein our DNA codes for 
that tells our brain cells to do good stuff, to stay alive, to make more connections. Um, inflammation, regulation of inflammation is another way that food influences mental health. Kind of new data, but we think at least research says like maybe a third, 40% of patients who have depression uh, are also struggling with some amount of inflammation being involved. Um, we also know that when people get depressed, all their inflammatory factors go up. So, you know, there's still researchers still really un untangling, uh, you know, what's causal and what's correlational. You know, mm -hmm. we, we know that like, if you don't eat enough B12 or B9, it, that will cause depression definitively. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of other things that are correlated with depression that we don't know whether it causes it or just, you know, uh, people, let's say, start craving a lot of carbs and sweets. Right. Uh, because they're depressed, right? Right. It's not really that it causes it. But anyway, just quickly, some other mechanisms. We're learning about a lot about inflammation in the microbiome. So fermented foods and plants affect the microbiome. It looks like more fermented foods, particularly is involved in the uh, microbiome kind of regulating, better regulating the immune system. Um, used to sound like crazy juju wellness stuff. Now that's just like science. Right. <laughs> it's really right. crazy. I think there's a connection piece and eat to beat depression and anxiety. My most recent book, I have a six week plan and the last week mm -hmm. isn't about food. It's about connecting with your uh, food community, connecting with people in your life around food, about forming more connections with you, your food supply and your food community. So I think that's a big part of it that when we, you know, when we go out to the other night, I finished work and my wife called and said, Hey, we're meeting this other family. Let's, and we all went out to pizza. And, you know, I just like was the, the, just the banter, the fun, the, right. So those, those are the kind of things that, again, that's great for my mental health. Right. I could have stayed home and eaten some wild salmon. I, you know, pizza is not the best brain food, but like, which right. one's better for my, my, exactly. my mental health? The pizza was in that yes. situation, yes. The full on gluten, yeah. cheese, sausage, because I, I'm in this non-isolated internet. There was also a delicious salad and some great kombucha. So don't worry, right. I got some brain foods in there, but right. This is an example that, that so, so connections, yeah. uh, I think there's a food SIBO effect, as I call it, which is that when I establish a set of food rules and Avanti follows them, there's a lot of psychology involved in Avanti feeling great. All of us on some level like to perform. And if there's <laughs> someone that is, we decide someone's our food guru and they say, you know, I really think this is awful. This is bad. I, whatever it is. And we do that and we feel a little better because a lot of times these interventions revolve around, you know, cutting out processed foods. When you cut out gluten sure. for people, you cut out commercial baked goods. Yep. When you cut out commercial baked goods, you just reduce somebody's risk of depression. Exactly. Period. Yes. They're highly correlated with depression. So it, it, it's, um, so food SIBO effects, I think, are real. And I think they're welcome. I like the idea that we feel good when we make choices according to a set of values that we believe are going to help our health. We can never know. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a gentleman who's fighting um, end-stage cancer. He's now cancer-free. He's done an amazing job. But, you know, he said, like, I did all this healthy stuff. I eat vegetables every day. I still got cancer. You know, it's not right. it's not perfect science, right? So, yeah. the, again, to say that idea that we're we're doing according to our values, what we think, what we best discern is, yeah. is good according to the science in terms of promoting our health. Um, and I think and so, what you're, and one thing, sorry to interrupt you. I think what you're bringing up is a really important point is that, you know, you're specifically in nutritional psychiatry, but nutrition is not just about the 
food. It's about the connection. It's about these other things that are feeding you, right? And that's exactly, I feel like that's what you're saying. And and I know from an Ayurvedic lens, that is so much about, so much what I talk about, that all of these aspects of life influence our health, our you know, ability to either go down that path to illness or that path to health and connection relationships are one of those things. So, you know, and and, for you, and, culture, right. I'd be really interested to hear Avanti, a, a little about your, your experience as an eater, because I think so many eaters are in this other mixed culture mm-hmm. from, from a mix of cultures. And so defining it for themselves is a little challenging or have been displaced from their culture mm-hmm. for, for whatever, you know, reasons, some, some good, not some not right. Uh, so uh, and, I, and I'm wondering for you the kind of connection between the traditional foods of your family and your mental health. It's a really good point. You know, I grew up eating mostly Indian food, home cooked Indian food that my mom would make. My mom was a homemaker. And, you know, of course, it's not a coincidence that for the first 18 years of my life, when I was living at home, I had no mental health challenges. Um, now, of course, you know, a lot of my struggles with depression re- and even anxiety started when I was in my medical training, which, you know, we can get on. That's, that's a whole nother reason that it's like, you know, that's like baseline. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean that's that's baseline. Been, it's like, yeah, it's exactly. Really, uh... But it also correlates with me not eating a lot of those traditional foods that I grew up with. Right. And, and uh, adopting a very Western diet that didn't have a lot of those spices and those anti-inflammatory, you know, you do, I'm sorry to interview, you do the opposite of the studies, right? All of the studies are, we're going to take people on a crappy Western diet and we're going to put them on a right. traditional diet. You go from eating this traditional diet, we, you know, literally right. we'd all prescribe for mental health. Yeah. And to this like Western diet. Right. That, and it, and it correlates exactly with my, you know, as soon as the depression and anxiety started to show up for me as a young adult, you know, a new mom, newly married, all of those things. All of those things had an impact, but definitely there is a connection there. And, you know, it's actually interesting because I I was reading your work and you have this concept of traditional dietary patterns, which I find really fascinating for this exact reason. Can you tell us more about sort of what you mean by that, the traditional dietary patterns? Uh, when I when I speak to the public, I show a slide. It's on the back porch in New York City. We had this little cute, uh, tiny apartment when we first started having kids, and my daughter's sitting on my lap, and we're eating. We got like a big bowl of mussels with the broth in it, and we're like eating out of it together. And and I kind of say, look, I, I apologize that, that we're going to be talking a lot about nutrients, but it's a shame to reduce this lovely scene. This young doctor and his daughter having all the good bonding stuff going on that the only value of these muscles is that they have lots of B12 and lots of DHA. And so to, and for a lot of time in medicine for, you know, lots of good reasons have been kind of obsessed with that. We want to know, like, <laughs> if you have low B12, what happens to your risk of dementia? But usually right. people don't just have low B12, right? That comes from someplace. Mm-hmm. Their, their gut is disrupted. They have a little autoimmune illness. They um, are not eating a set of few foods that have B12. So, uh, you know, the dietary pattern allows us to think more broadly about our foods. One, so we're not obsessed with like one superfood. The two, that we're not just obsessed with um, one way of thinking about food. What traditional dietary pattern mean is that the stuff that's on your plate is not highly processed food. It's it's food that existed in 1900. It's food that existed in 1800. 
it's food that existed 3000 years ago. Right. Some people like to break this up. The paleolithic people try to say like agriculture was evil. Grains are evil. Beans are evil. I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of data that goes against all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Do I think people have challenges with a lot of different foods? Sure. Is mm-hmm. it important for all of us to experiment and kind of mix it up and, and especially for having challenges, entertain ideas around food sensitivities or food categories that our body just doesn't like at this point in our life. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all important, but dietary patterns. So, so in nutritional psychiatry and, and as a clinician, what I really focus on in a dietary pattern is increasing nutrient density. Okay. I'm going to look at it realistically as let's say you're, I don't know, 2000, 2,500 calories a day, right? For those calories, I'm wondering, can I, how many omega-3 fats can I get into that brain? Can I, you know, top out all of the most important nutrients for depression? 100%, 150%. Can I get enough magnesium and zinc and potassium for that number of calories? And can I avoid foods that are besides the nutrition, maybe going to counteract my efforts? Can I avoid foods that are going to promote weight gain and diabetes? Can I avoid foods that are going to promote depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. And so as we're thinking about a dietary pattern, thinking that all the data says it's a traditional dietary pattern. So these are going to be whole foods we're picking. Our, our um, antidepressant food scale is an open source paper that Laura Lachance, a fellow psychiatrist and colleague, uh, published uh, that anybody can look up where, where we mm-hmm. basically asked, what are the most important nutrients for depression? We found 12. Mm-hmm. That's always going to evolve and change. And there were some, you know, sure. it's like, they're in all my books and all my talks, and I believe in the science, but it didn't make this list. Like the, there aren't fermented foods on this list because you can't mm-hmm. really calculate that exactly. There aren't uh, phytonutrients aren't considered in this list, but but these twelve traditional nutrients things, you know, not the usual suspects. Some surprising potassium, selenium, uh, B six, but you know the the usual suspects: omega three fats, iron, zinc, uh, magnesium, B twelve, B nine, B one. We just ask what foods, what whole natural foods have the most of these per calorie? Mm-hmm. We create this list of uh, antidepressant foods, the both plant and animal foods, with the idea, you know, number one on the plant list is watercress. It's not like, oh, that's why you're depressed. You haven't been eating watercress. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's more this list helped us see food categories. The, the watercress is on there. So is a bunch of other leafy greens. And mm-hmm. leafy greens are on there because leafy greens are mostly water. They've got a lot of nutrition, lots of different nutrients, lots of vitamin C, lots of uh, folate, some fiber, uh, 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 you know, a bunch of interesting phytonutrients. And there, there's almost no calories, right? 20, right. 30, 40 calories a cup. So, um, and there are also lots of rainbow, colorful vegetables, peppers, and cruciferous vegetables on this list. On the animal side, it was fish, seafood, mm-hmm. bivalves in particular, three of the top five were mussels, clams, and oysters. Oysters were the top food for, for animals. And again, that's because these are very nutrient-dense foods. One oyster, an East Coast oyster, has 10 calories, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and is uh, almost has 100% of your daily need of zinc. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one. For 10 calories to note 42% of Americans don't meet the recommended daily allowance for zinc. So is oyster the answer for everybody's a lot of people don't know how to eat oysters or don't like oysters or aren't near, but that said, it's never been a food that's been promoted or recommended or encouraged based on the fact that it has all of these nutrients that our brain needs. And that for the most part, 
human brains have always eaten these foods. So, um, but that's a long-winded explanation to dietary pattern. There's a lot of different ways. Right now, that in, in there's like a dietary pattern. It's like it's there's a vegan dietary pattern or there's a carnivore dietary pattern. You better pick one soon, folks, because mm-hmm. I mean, I really it's become so. Um, I guess you know, mostly sad to me that the nuance of nutrition, personal nutrition, the nuance of animals within our ecosystem, food system the way that there are multiple different roles that those, those play for us right. and multiple different ethical challenges for us besides, uh, you know, some, some of maybe the obvious ones, you know, uh, that are certainly the way we do meet now for a lot right. of folks is not, is not a win. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, it's just sad to me that instead of focusing on mental health, instead of focusing on food security, instead of focusing on the deep connections that food can provide us, Mm-hmm. It's become this really polarizing thing, right? You know, filled with a lot of missing, lot. Gosh, there's so much information, Avanti. Can you believe how much? Have you seen so much misinformation about kale? I mean, you're a doctor, like literally yeah. kale. If you Google low oxalate <laughs> diet, kale <laughs> is like top of like you will be put on kale. People are like, what leafy green can I get that doesn't have oxalates? It's like kale, kale or bok choy, but kale. So the idea that you know somehow the internet's full of all this stuff that like kale's filled with anti-nutrients that sucks all the nutrition out of it. I mean, it's really, uh, right. I think it just goes to show you some people don't realize how confused folks are and how important it is whenever someone has a platform to be really responsible yes. when we think about recommendations when it comes right. to uh, human health. But yeah, is- I agree. And, you know, I think you, again, you're getting to a point that I, I really talk a lot about with, you know, my students and my clients and, you know, people that I teach, um, which is, you know, everything is good. Not everything is good for everyone. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that, you know, there is, you know, there is no one set way to eat and it is very personalized, but there are some general things that we can all follow, which is, I think what you're getting at with this traditional dietary pattern, which is to go back to the way that our grandmothers and great grandmothers and grandfathers ate, which is, you know, as balanced as they could with a lot of whole foods that came from the earth that were not processed and doing a variety of foods, right? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. And also depending culturally, right? I'm South Asian. I came from a family that was vegetarian uh, religiously. And so we didn't eat a lot of, I mean, there was no animal protein. There was no animal sources of these nutrients. And that's what I grew up with. Right. But that doesn't mean that that should be the way it is for everyone. And if I am, you know, facing a health challenge like depression, it's, it, you know, it's a good idea for me to try some fish, which I have, and it's well, helped it, me immensely. Share with everybody. Cause maybe I'm a little, I don't know, different uh, about this clinically, but I think it's important. It's very intentional that, that if I were working with Avanti and I heard that mm-hmm. I'd really first want to hear about the meaning of a vegetarian diet to her, how it fits into her culture. I think so often physicians hear this and they think, Oh, you're a woman, you're vegetarian. You know, you're not getting enough iron. You have depression, right. you're not getting omega three fats. You should be eating wild salmon. Why aren't you wanting salmon? Yep. And it's like, and, and it's, a, it's a really, it's a way that, that bias enters in, in all kinds of ways in medicine. That's really unfortunate when it comes to nutrition. Mm-hmm. There are lots of ways for Avanti to eat a perfectly 
uh, a vegetarian diet that's in line, especially with her religious beliefs uh, and not eat seafood. Right. And, and, and if she wants to make that choice to try, I mean, I'm always really honored to be a clinician who's in that space with somebody with like, maybe it's going to be disgusting. You know, maybe she's going to go fall in love with sushi and beating like, you know, eating like fish eggs all the time, who knows, but you know, being in someone's corner to help them sort that out is really one of the, you know, first of all, stances, I think of nutritional psychiatry that I really try to promote. I really appreciate that because that's exactly pretty much what happened to me with the integrative psychiatrist that I worked with, you know, here in Chicago, who's a friend of mine now. Um, and he kind of said the same thing to me that, you know, Avanti, I get it. You're a vegetarian and this is what the data shows. And I do think that this will help you. And so with that kind of dialogue with the clinician who really cares and is really hearing me, right? Because doctors need doctors too, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was willing to make that change and I do feel that it has helped me, you know, and I think it's, again, it gets back to this idea that, oh, you know, people will say to me, Ayurveda, well, it's very much a vegetarian way of life. Well, okay. It was written that way in the Vedic texts and perhaps assumed because of cultural and religious uh, influences, but it's not exactly ever said that it has to be vegetarian. And so you can be non-vegetarian and, and follow an Ayurvedic lifestyle. And so I think this is sort of what you're getting at is that you, you really have to meet people where they are um, to help them and becoming positional about things and saying, no, you must have clams and oysters and this and that because you have depression and you want to get over depression. Well, but there are other ways you know, to do that. But you know, what would you say um, are some of the key nutrients for someone who's dealing with depression or anxiety, whichever you want to talk about, or we can talk about both. Um, you know, well, yeah. what would you say are some of the key nutrients or foods that people can try to add to their, their diets um, to help them with that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'd like to answer in the, the food uh, with the foods, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the nutrients, they're all important for mental health. Certainly the 12 Dr. Lachance and I found that we mentioned earlier, you know, those are right now in the literature, the most important um, but lots of nutrients like iodine, hugely important for mental health. It's one of the, it, it, that is the top worldwide cause iodine deficiency of, um, sort of delays in mental and brain uh, development. So, so the foods that we came to our power players, as I called them, are, mm-hmm. are representations of these food categories. My power players, though, just to kind of go through them. You know, uh, uh, red beans for the beans. You know, lots of people like black beans. I love black beans, but red beans are one of the top antioxidant containing food. Actually, it is the top according to the USDA. Um, I like beans for a lot of different reasons, but mainly fiber, protein, fermented foods is a big food category. Kefir and kombucha are kind of two of the big ones that I find most accessible. Kefir in part because it has the most um, nutrients, uh, I'm sorry, most colony forming units of bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to um, other fermented foods and compared to probiotics, for sure. Like uh, some kefirs I've seen six to eight ounces with colony forming units of a trillion. Mm-hmm. And you, you never you go, go look at your probiotics in your grocery store. They go to like 2 billion. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like 500 times less. So uh, um, I, some of the other foods in the leafy green category, you know, besides I have a pretty serious kale obsession for a while after I, my second book was 50 shades well, yeah. of kale. I mean, you did write a book on it yeah, so, with that title. It's like a strange career move, right? It's like, and then launch. It's a great, it's a great title, by the way. I love Thank it. You. 50 I, Shades I, of I, Kale. I like that. It's like awesome. 
Awesome. It, it, thank you. It's just all, I think that I really enjoyed that book. I wrote that Jennifer Easterlow was my my <laughs> chef and co-author on that book. And we had a we had a wild time and we ate a lot of kale. I think at one point for like three or four years, three years in a row, like I'd eaten kale every day and literally everywhere I went, everywhere, uh-huh. people made me a kale salad. I mean, oh, I ate like I ate every type of kale salad <laughs> you can imagine. It's pretty and I still eat kale salads. It's not like yeah. Again, this idea that like kale is toxic. Right. It's like I don't take any supplements, you know, and I'm not trying to make it a, a, a about aging, but like if kale were a toxic food, <laughs> I would be somebody who would probably be having a lot of effects of that as a top <laughs> promoter of kale. Yeah. So, so anyway, leafy greens. I'm a big fan. If I'm doing some meal and I'm like, like here I am serving up pasta, I drop a couple microgreens on there, you know, mm-hmm. just again. Does that make pasta like an incredible health food? No. Does it add a ton of nutrition and uh, to my pasta meal? Yes, it does. And and so, um, so leafy greens are great food category. And those are some that that I recommend Uh, in terms of seafood. You know, I kind of think about the trifecta. I mean, there's the bivalves, the mussels, clams, and oysters trifecta where, Mm -hmm. you know, anything from pasta vongole to, um, uh, interesting, you know, bula based, you know, just dishes that maybe aren't just one of those things. If it's a uh-huh. challenge for you or, you know, um, I always encourage people, if it's something you're not used to try it, try it in a restaurant, you know, or mm-hmm. when someone else orders it, pick one of their muscles off their plate and try right. it out. You don't have to go, you know, make two pounds and then throw it away. Yeah. Um, be kind to yourself as you try things yes. out. Um, yeah. Uh, but besides the wild salmon known for its incredible omega-3 content, I also promote canned fish uh, just because of the ease of using it and sardines and anchovies, just because the low price point, mm-hmm. you know, very young animal. So don't have to worry about as much, you know, mercury, toxins, right. plastics, all that stuff. Um, and, and they last forever. You don't have to worry whether it's fresh or not, you know, mm-hmm. things like the salmon in there that are already cooked. So, you know, kind of, yeah. For a lot of the barriers, it's just that most people, you know, I did not use anchovies. I didn't, you know, I make a great kale Caesar salad now. It's awesome. And, and I make an amazing, uh, uh like a gnocchi with, I'm in a pasta mood. It's like going to be the end of the week here, but a gnocchi with like sardines and, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a bunch of, uh, pine nuts and garlic and a little tomato paste. So it's, um, figuring out your canned fish game. That, that that's definitely on my list. Okay. Um, uh, dark chocolate is on there. We've talked about dark chocolate, but dark chocolate's interesting, very stimulating food for a lot of yes. people, especially if you get about an 80% plus, you know, this mm-hmm. is not something you're going to wolf down very intense culinary experience, very, very rich, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a lot of phytonutrients, those are plant-based nutrients in cacao, uh, lots of flavanols, mm-hmm. some interesting data that your blood flow to your brain increases, the risk of depression goes down. So again, mm-hmm. Our hope in nutritional psychiatry is not to get people eating dark chocolate all the time, but if people right. are enjoying dark chocolate and you have a square for breakfast or two, or, you know, in the middle of your day when you're slumpy, it's fine right. to have half a dark chocolate bar. It, it's not this horrible, guilty, right. awful, right? It, it, it's actually just another brain food. Right. And so, you know, very, very often for me, a snack is going to be a handful of raw unsalted nuts mm-hmm. and some dark chocolate. So I'm trying to think of other food categories oh rainbow vegetables you know call them rainbows this idea that a lot of different natural colors on your plate is just a really Mm -hmm. it's a nice basic easy metric 
around the number of phytonutrients that you're eating because phytonutrients generally are represented in plants and as pigments. So mm-hmm. a lot of these uh, carotenoids and flavanols are associated with um, you know, blue and orange and yellow and red foods. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's also Beautiful. in terms of meat and eggs, again, I think these are very nutrient dense foods for the most part. You know, if you, if you look at, you know, the outrage about meat, it's not on a caloric basis. You know, people are really mistaken that most of the calories and things like a burger don't come from the burger. If you get yeah. a fast food burger, the majority of those calories are not from beef. Right. Uh, it, it, even, you know, if you look at I don't know, a good four, six ounce steak, you know, talking a couple hundred calories, and it's not a big caloric load. And it's a lot of nutrition and highly absorbable nutrition. You know, I, I encourage people to be much more mindful with their meat that I find there's a lot of burgers and T-bones and, and, and filet mignons and not a lot of beef stews, uh, not a lot of, you know, taco with liver meat in there, not a lot of beef shanks. Let's talk about the action items from this. I hope yeah. those power players help a little bit. There's yeah. a lot more information about those and some of the yep. bigger concepts in nutritional psychiatry, which we've touched on the mm-hmm. microbiome inflammation. The book has lots and lots of illustrations. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea book. Really, beautiful well, thank book. you so much. Catherine Christian is the illustrator. She was our first beautiful. book. Really wonderful to work with her. Uh, um, but then, you know, along with all the delicious foods we've talked about and some that, you know, I, I suspect a lot of people like, and maybe haven't thought about, yeah. or, you know, I don't think anybody said, hey, cashews are a great brain food because they're filled with iron and and mm-hmm. think about your seafood game. So I hope that isn't yeah. oppressive and annoying, but comes across to people as no, I think inspiring. it's I think it's super helpful. And I know that we're really over time, but I have two more questions if well, I could if you could indulge me. Yeah. Okay, great. So you know, I think one question that I, I know a lot of people will ask, well, okay, I make all these changes. How long will it take for me to start feeling different? You know, what have you seen clinically with the thousands, hundreds and thousands of patients that you've seen and worked with? How I'm in the thousands, I think. Thousands, I'm, I'm sure you thousands are. Thousands of hours. I calculated the day. I'm like, I'm okay. like over 20,000 hours in the wow. chair as a therapist. So I feel yeah. good about that number, but yeah. I think it's so thousands of people. Thousands of people, right? So, you know, what have you seen clinically in your work with um, yeah, thousands a few of patients? A few caveats about that. I'm a general psychiatrist, so people come to me for all kinds of mental health reasons, and food is one of the things I do. So I have a biased sample in the sense that a lot of people who see me end up in, in therapy or take medications or, or come, you know, take supplements. I find that when food is something that people incorporate into their plan, a number of things happen. Uh, because this way of eating leads to less inflammation, for some people leads to weight loss. Um, it leads to an avoidance of processed food. There's an initial effect for people of adhering to a plan. And because it's good and delicious stuff, I think a little bump. I think anytime any of us feel like I've been seen and heard and there's a plan moving forward, especially if we're in a bad spot with our mental health, that really helps, you know? So I I don't think most people ever expect like, oh, I ate salmon. And like, now I'm like, where's that good mood you promised? Right. Antidepressants take a month to work for a good, except for ketamine, take a, a, for a good reason, which is that as you coax brain, new brain connections to be made and you kind of squash them inflammation as most antidepressants are also anti-inflammatories, it it takes a little bit is the theory. So I try to think about food in the same way. We're thinking about three to four weeks. Um, That said, sometimes, like if you're starting to add in a lot of fermented food, a recent study by Wastick and Gardner out of Stanford said they they ramped up people's fermented foods. 
did amazing things for the microbiome diversity, for their immune, their immune system just kind of function better. It's a very cool study. Mm-hmm. But they're like three to four weeks of like gas and bloating yeah. and just kind of getting used to the plants and the fermented food. So, uh, you know, I think the things that surprised me that I would hear people improve their food, I hear they sleep better mm-hmm. and they have better energy. Those two things are, of course, related, which I never expected. It's like the first time I was like, how's it going with the food? They're like, oh, it's good. I'm sleeping better. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that and, and I think part of that is people just being more intentional. Right? If you're not right. You know, if, 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 if you, you're struggling with your mental health and you know, if you're under my care, you'll get a lot of encouragement, not hopefully not in a judgmental way, but a lot of encouragement about an earlier bedtime, a lot of encouragement about really early morning light, mm-hmm. um, improving these foods, you know, so there, there's more usually going on than just the food, but I'm going to say, uh, three to four weeks. And then let's just quickly say about the study, the studies that are impressive is if you take somebody who has extremely severe depression, you teach them a Mediterranean diet and they adopt it, mm-hmm. their mood improves drastically and, uh, and they still remain mildly depressed, but they go from like scoring a 25, 26 on a mood rating scale, which is severely depressed down mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, something like a 10, a mild depression. That's incredible. They, they do that over three months and it sustains at six months. Wow. The best data on this is for college students and it's three weeks. Wow. If you show college students who are a little bit depressed and have bad eating habits, a video about eating for brain health, and you call them twice for five minutes each, and you give them a box of olive oil, nut butters, nuts, and the spices, cinnamon and turmeric, and with some recipes and encouragement and handouts about eating a traditional diet, in three weeks, you drastically reduce their depression on formal rating scales. Drastically is like all the other kids go up by a few points and these yeah. kids go down by like six, seven, eight points. And it's like a 20 point scale. That's so incredible. It's really, it, it's really, so, so that, I mean, that that's answering yeah. your question of how much time, sure. a little bit of my clinical perspective and a little bit of the studies. Let's end like our conversation here with three tips that if you could get, I mean, you've told us so much and shared so much knowledge and wisdom that it's hard to keep up. I'm going to have to go back and listen and make notes, but you know, what would be three tips that you would give my listeners to really, if they wanted to start using plants and food as medicine to support their mental health, what would you suggest to them? Mm, okay. Number one's oven roasted vegetables. I, I think having a sheet pan or a cookie sheet, you drop down some parchment paper, get a bowl, whatever it is, whatever veggies you like, broccoli, red peppers, asparagus, cabbage, squash, Brussels sprouts. I think number two is seafood, just because that's where people struggle mm-hmm. the most, whether that's doing something for the first time. If you're a seafood eater, like making mussels at home or shucking oysters, be careful about shucking oysters at home or um, making the wild salmon burgers and eat to be depression and anxiety. If you're not a seafood eater, I, I would, I would be thinking about, start, are there some places that are of interest to you? You know, mm-hmm. uh, are fish tacos of interest to you? Uh, is, is shrimp right. ceviche? So exploring, I haven't thought about ceviche and I haven't thought about kalanese or <laughs> ceviche in a really long time. I have a feeling you're going to be making some of that this weekend. I know, like, uh, it's <laughs> like this inspired. <laughs> So that's two. Well, I'm just going to say like number three is, is number three, I'm going to call special sprinkle. And so I think <laughs> it's always important to have a special, sp- I'm making this up right now, Avanti. I love it. Special sprinkle. Special it's going to be in your next book. 
it's, so, <laughs> it's something that you, you can sprinkle on a lot of different foods and really bump up the nutrient density. So I uh, have been making a lot of waffles, if you've noticed this. So, you know, think of like, what can you special sprinkle in there? Again, mm. to increase the nutrient density, like how do we drop in zinc? How do we drop in more fiber? How do we switch out some of that flour, all of it for something like buckwheat flour? The cacao nibs go in there that I can sprinkle those in. I can chop in those pumpkin seeds. I sprinkle those in. All of a sudden, I've got a pretty nutrient-dense yeah. waffle. The other thing about cacao nibs, I love to drop them in the smoothies for a little bit of uh, texture. I love to, for folks who um, uh, are oatmeal fans and looking ways to jazz up your oatmeal. Again, it's mm -hmm. not sweet, especially if you're not a sweet person. A lot of people aren't sweet people. If you're not a sweet person, cacao nibs are where it's at. You get this yeah. really, really rich, but subtle yeah. chocolate flavor. So, um, and then pumpkin seeds are great. They're great in smoothies. They're great in salads. I put them in omelets. Just they're, they're packed with zinc. Pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds packed with zinc. Sunflower seeds packed with vitamin E. So those are those are my three three little three little tips. I love it. I love it. This feels like a really good place to end our time together. If I offer up the phrase to you to catalyze healing, what comes up for you? Eat more fermented foods. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right now, I mean, I think that. Some people don't like them. They don't fit for everybody. So I'm going to say that's for the people who are okay trying some fermented foods, but I think the microbiome diversity data is good. And that's the most actionable step. If you don't like fermented foods, you don't like that answer. I would say to catalyze healing, the most important thing for you to do is try to have a deeper conversation. doesn't mm -hmm. matter who that's with or whether it's just with yourself. I just think in my, in my practice of psychiatry, I'm amazed at how deep into conversation and process we can get with other individuals, even people, you know, a lot of people don't know me very well. And, and suddenly we're in some of, some of the richest parts of their mind. So I think that's all, uh, all of us have that capacity. I don't have them, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of experience sitting and listening. It's, <laughs> it's valuable, right? It's like a meditation for me now to sit and be with right. people that way, but but we all have that capacity to deepen our listening and to then deepen our experience with other people. So I think that, that that process and thinking of that process, that deepening, deepening of uh, our, our connections with others, deepening of our capacity for kindness and tolerance. I think that's uh, that, that, that catalyzes that, that catalyzes healing for me because that's actually the pinnacle of health. And I have to say, thank you for doing that with me. I mean, the, the conversation we have had has been very deep and very, I feel very connected to you. And this is the first time I've met you and we have gone so over our time, but um, thank you. And thank you for, for indulging me in so many questions and being so vulnerable and honest. And thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.